Well, friends, I tell you what, if the pastor's been out of the pulpit for two weeks and he comes back, you better buckle up. Uh, two weeks ago, we had Lanny uh, Johnson here talking about creation, and then last week I was out of town, and uh, Brother Roger Kreiser from our sister church, Harrison Street, over in Omaha, preached, and both of those guys are quite different than me, and that's good, uh, because I'm me, and they're them, and we want them to be them, but... We're turning back for two more sermons, the last two sermons uh, from our series, Revive Us Again, a survey of Old Testament revivals. Remember I said that we're not covering all the revivals in the Old Testament, but we're covering seven of them here, and uh, I'll leave the rest of them for some other time. And then, um, you know, two weeks from now, we'll preach on missions, and then it'll be Christmas time before we know it, right? But I am glad to be here with you. And so if you haven't already, open your Bible to um, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You've got a Bible in the pew in front of you. Hopefully uh, you, you might have, if you have a tablet or a smartphone, have the Version Bible app downloaded. You go to the live tab there. You can follow our sermon with all the scriptures built into it. Super cool way to do that. You can even tweet and share right from that thing. Save your notes. All kinds of great stuff that the technology does for us there. But uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. Now, the main player in our story today, not a story like it's made up, but is King Jehoshaphat. And he's got kind of a weird name, Jehoshaphat. That's really how you say it, King Jehoshaphat. And we'll get to what his name means uh, later. And it seems that King Jehoshaphat was a good guy. He was a good and godly king, yet he could be misled. And maybe sometimes he didn't make the best choices. And maybe he might have even been rebellious or forgetful. But what Scripture tells us about him, for the most part, is good. Now, if you're in Second Chronicles 20, turn back to chapter 17. By means of introduction, let's look at what it says of King Jehoshaphat. Early in his reign, here it says in 2 Chronicles 17, verse 3, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early days he walked in the ways of his father David. His father David had followed, so David wasn't his actual father, but you know, ancestor David is what it means, King David. He did not consult the Baals, the false gods, but sought God, uh, but sought the God of his father and followed the commands rather than the practices of Israel. So Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom. Remember now we're in the era of divided kingdoms. There is Israel, the ten tribes to the north, and Judah, the two tribes to the south, which is Judah and Benjamin. But Benjamin, God bless him, as the smaller tribe doesn't get mentioned. So it's not Judah men or anything like that. It's just Judah. But Benjamin's still with them. And so when it says he didn't do what the, uh, Israel did, in other words, those kings in Israel, they were all bad dudes for the most part, but he was following God. Look at verse 5. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed from the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So he obeyed God, God blessed him, and he further devoted himself to God, and he did more in obedience to God. Isn't that amazing what God had done through Jehoshaphat? Now, if you turn in your Bible, at least I have to turn to chapter 18 you see that he gets led astray. He joins up with wicked King Ahab of Israel to fight against a common enemy. God says, hey, dude, you shouldn't have done this. 
And then you turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19, uh, Ahab has died, but look at verse 3 of chapter 19. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. So this is God's prophet speaking to Jehoshaphat, saying, you're not a bad dude after all. You've done this bad thing, but God knows that there's good in you, so God is going to take care of you. There are four different times recorded in Scripture where God used prophets or spokesmen to come rebuke Jehoshaphat and come get him back on the right path. And we see one of those right here where it wasn't really rebuke, but in our passage today where it was encouragement to follow God when he needed it rather than do things his way. There's one key lesson we can learn from Jehoshaphat today. The title of your sermon is Responding When Threatened. Responding When Threatened. But the key lesson, the key thing we're going to see to when we're responding when threatened, when we're threatened physically, when we're threatened financially, when we're threatened with our health, when we're threatened in any way, spiritually, emotionally, there's a simple answer. It's four letters. P-R-A-Y. Everybody say pray. Pray. How do you respond when threatened? Pray. Yes. So often we want to take things into our own hands. We want to worry about it. We want to fight. We want to do something. We want to gather people with us. We want to manipulate. We want to triangulate. We want to do anything other than what we should do to begin with, which is pray. Our key verse for this month reminds us of that. Our scripture of the month is 2 Chronicles 7.14. So this is also from the book of 2 Chronicles, a different king, a different era. But it reminds us of the heart of revival biblically. That biblical revival starts right here. This would be our touchstone passage for our entire uh, sermon series. Let's say it together. 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7, 14. God tells us in a biblical model for revival how we ought to live differently. The preaching of the word moves people towards God, and prayer moves God graciously to pour out His power on behalf of His people. There's two sides to that. Let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, we open your word this morning and we pray that you speak to us. Because if not at this very moment in our life, where there may be threats, threats of a health diagnosis that's a little bit scary that could be cancer in the case of Gwen Montgomery. Threats of your landlord is selling your house out from underneath you and you need a new house with some very specific requirements real soon. Threats of a co-worker who is not doing their job and making things difficult for you and everyone else. And all the other sorts of threats that come against us. God, we turn to you And it is our prayer that we would learn from Jehoshaphat and that we would be motivated to do the one thing he did, the one thing his people did, 
and be able to see you do the amazing things only you can do. So, God, would we learn today to pray? We thank you for what you've done in the life of Jehoshaphat and recording it here for us. And we pray that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, Amen. So turning to your outline, we give you five different upstatements of what to do. The first one says, when threatened, God's people should gather up. When threatened, God's people should gather up. Now, we've got to go to our, our text to see that. So uh, you've got your Bible in front of you there in verses 1 through 4. Let's look at what it says. It says, after this, so this is after Jehoshaphat had come back and got his kingdom organized the way God wanted it to again. So things seem to be going right. So many times, friends, I will tell you this. It will be when you have a victory spiritually. It will be when you have exercise some new obedience or some new faith that you better watch out because the devil's going to come against you. And if it's not the devil that comes against you, it is God that will allow some circumstance in your life in order to test the faith and test the persistence, test the resolve that you've just demonstrated. So look at what happened here. So Jehoshaphat and his folks are going the right direction. Verse 1 again, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Meonites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. So 2.5 other nations, 0.5 because it said some of the Meunites, not all of them, right? 2.5 other nations are coming to fight against Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, some of the men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Hazanon Temor that is called in Gedi. Verse 3, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Remember, that's the Lord God, capital O, capital R, capital D. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Do you see what happens here? 2.5 nations worth of bad guys are coming against him. And what do God's people do in the face of this, they're alarmed, they're afraid, but they turn to seek God. They don't worry about things on their own. They turn to seek God. It says in the ESV, um, that translation, that Jehoshaphat set his face to seek the Lord. Another one says he resolved to seek God and he proclaimed a fast. Remember, there's only one time as far as in the uh, worship of God's people that there's supposed to be a fast in one of their holy days. But there is fasting other times throughout the Bible to remind us when we fast, particularly from food, of our need of our spiritual hunger for God, to God to answer something. And fasting, we've talked about that before, does amazing things to focus your attention on God as you devote yourself to Him. But notice the response of the people. They answered as well. They came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town to seek Him. The Bible says there, there's two words that it uses um, of the prayer here. One is daras in Hebrew, and it means to inquire. And the other one is bikes in Hebrew, and it means to seek. 
They were inquiring of God. They were seeking of God. I mean, I don't know how many synonyms I might use of praying and asking God for help, but even the Hebrew, who's not too descriptive, our Hebrew writers, they're saying in two different ways they came to ask God for help. So your point there on number one, your next point, is that God allows difficulty for His glory. God allows difficulty for His glory. Yeah, friends, I said it. You've heard me say it before. Not only does God just allow difficulty, sometimes God will even be the cause of the difficulty. Sometimes God will cause either for judgment's sake, but always ultimately for His glory's sake, that something negative will happen in your life, something fearful, something scary, something threatening or challenging will happen to you in order to force you to turn to God. Something so big that you don't have any ability physically on your own. You don't have any ability mentally on your own. And emotionally, you can't bear it anymore. And you may have had a good relationship with God. But you may not have been fully devoted to God. But God will either cause or allow difficulty in our lives in order to force us to seek Him. So my questions for you are this. What are my difficulties right now? If you're asking yourself, have I asked God for help? Many times we just try to do it on our own, and we're so used to doing it on our own because we're human, we're American, we're like, I'm going to do it myself. I don't need to ask God about this. And we justify it by saying, oh, God's busy with bigger things. I don't need to pray with God, to God about this thing, but God wants us to. Could it be that God is waiting on you to call on Him? Could it be that God is testing your faith? Could it be that God is seeking to grow your faith? Could it be that it's just not God's timing yet? And even though He knows He's going to answer your prayer request as you need it, there's some other circumstance that needs to happen involving the other people in it uh, that's not right in His timing. If we trust that God is sovereign... That means he has all authority, all power, and the rule and reign that is his, which is all the universe. If he's sovereign in the universe, we have to trust that God is up for anything, and he has the power and the ability to do it. So the question finally is, have I surrendered to his sovereignty? Have I said, okay, God, I trust that you're going to take care of me because you love me. You've saved me by your grace. You've got a place for me in heaven. But you also don't want my life here to be terrible. You want my life here to be one in which I become more like Jesus over time. And it takes threats and challenges and negative circumstances to strengthen me and to purify me and to make me more like Jesus. Let's go on in our passage and get to your second point on your outline. So the first one was they gathered up together. The second point on your outline is they prayed up to God. The second major point there is pray up to God. Now, I know that sounds silly, but I just had to stick with my ups, okay? So give it to me. They pray up to God. Now, a quick little excursus on prayer. I love the word excursus because it means an aside from everything else you're doing. I didn't learn that till I went to seminary. And now since I went to seminary, you know the word too. Uh, try to spell it. It's funny. Uh, E-X-C-U-R-S-U-S. I always want to put an I in there, but it's excursus. An excursus on prayer. Because if we're talking about prayer, friends, doesn't it beg the question, what does it mean to pray? Well, if we seek to define it just really briefly, it's presenting our request to God by the Holy Spirit in the name that is also the authority of Jesus with faith in God's sovereignty and His will to answer our prayer. So, see, even my definition, I'm 
hitting all three parts of the Trinity, right? Presenting our request to God by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us pray, Scripture says. In the name, which means the authority, the power of Jesus, and depending upon God's sovereignty to answer. So that's what prayer is. So then there's the question, well, why should I pray if God is sovereign and He knows everything anyway? I mean, you guys have asked that question before, right? I said it a little bit earlier in my prayer. It's not to inform God because He knows. It's to draw our affection and our attention to God in worship. Because the same providence that God uses to orchestrate the ends that we are seeking, God is also at work in the means to get there, our prayers. And God gives us the gift of prayer as a vehicle to develop our relationship with Him through the challenges us to cause us to depend on Him and to see that only He can do what we need done. So there's a third question I have about prayer. And that's, how do we pray if we want our prayers to be acceptable to God. Well, God says a few things about our prayers. He says that our prayers should be for His glory and that He will pray to supply our needs, not always our wants, and that we should resolve and persist in prayer and not give up. There are quite a few things that God says about prayer. But the first one, and you write down this scripture passage, if you will, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. Proverbs 1, 24 through 28. The first principle of our prayer is that God wants us first to seek Him and fear Him. In other words, have a proper awe or reverence or respect of who He is. And that's Proverbs chapter 1, 24 through 28. And that's the first foundational principle to prayer. And Jehoshaphat and the folks demonstrated that to God because when they were threatened and they were alarmed, they sought God, they inquired of God, they came together to do this, and they even proclaimed a fast to God. So let's go on in verses 5 through 12, because that's our passage of Scripture here, this second point. Let me read there. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said. So he's praying here. This is Jehoshaphat's prayer in, in the threat. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God who is in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms of all nations. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. He's calling on God, using back to God titles of God, characteristics of God that he learned from Scripture, that he learned from his forefathers like David. The same thing we should do. Friends, that's why you need to memorize Scripture. That's why you need to read Scripture so that God can speak to you through Scripture. So you speak back to God with the very Scripture. And that you say to God, God, this is what your word says. I'm asking you to do it for me. I'm asking you to do it for your glory. Verse 7. Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to your forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? You see what he did there? He's calling on God in two ways. He's saying, God, you gave us this land, and now these yahoos are going to come take it away from us. God, it's your land to protect because you promised that it would be our land forever. Jehoshaphat, not in a manipulative way, not at all. He's humble before God, but he's reminding God, God, these are your promises, and I'm asking you to stand by your promises for me, but for your glory. And he even said, 
you promised it to Abraham who you called your friend. Is that like a prayer name drop maybe? You know? I don't think, again, because I don't believe Jehoshaphat's seeking to manipulate God. He's just reminding God of what God had said. He's reminding God of who he was in the past and who he was related to in the past. So let's go on, verse 8. They have lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name. So now he's saying, God, we've got the temple which we worship you here. And this is all about worship to you. Verse 9. If calamity comes upon us, whether sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. Did you hear what he said? He said, if, should be when, if bad stuff happens and we are threatened, where we're going to come is your place where you told us to worship you and we're going to call on you and we're going to keep calling on you until you answer us, God. Right here where I stand right now with these people fasting and praying to you, we are obeying you and what you've told us to do, God. I mean, he's laying it on, folks. Look, verse 10. But now we hear there are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you will not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So in other words, you told us not to. We obeyed you then. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them back in the days. Verse 11. See how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of this possession you gave us as an inheritance? Verse 12, the closer. Oh, our God, will you not judge them, the bad guys? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Thursday morning when we had our prayer meeting and I shared a part of this passage of Scripture with our folks that come at 6 a.m., Brother Mark Pomeroy, a missionary who's made his life by faith as a missionary, started quoting Scriptures out of Second Chronicles 20. He says, I love that passage. And he quoted verse after verse. Because he's held on to that. An example for all of us to hold on to God's word and his promises. We don't know what to do, but God, our eyes are on you. Friends, your next point there on your outline. Answering that pray up to God. That sub-point there is that God delights in keeping His promises. God delights in keeping His promises. He loves you. And He gave you His Word as a love letter to you to tell you how to live, to encourage you, to strengthen you. And when you pray His Word back to Him, He delights in keeping His promises. He will do what He says. Let's remind Him of it. Let's call it out to Him in prayer. God delights in keeping His promises. And when we say to Him, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on You, like my mom would say, that's music to my ears. My mom, when I was a kid, you know, she taught us to be polite and stuff like that. You know, and so we come into the kitchen and say, Mom, can I have such and such? She'd be like, what did you say? Can I have such and such? What did you say? Oh, Mom, can I please have such and such? 
And she would respond with, that's music to my ears. And then she would do whatever it was we asked, the such and such. Or she'd give us a good reason why she wasn't going to do it. But I just love the way my mom would say that. That's music to my ears. God is in heaven. When we say to him, God, I can't do it. I don't know what to do. God's up there going, that's music to my ears. You just sit back, keep praying, wait on my timing, and watch what I'm going to do for you. It begs the question, what promises do I know that God has given me? What more promises do I need to find to answer the threats that are facing me now? And will I, by faith, like Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, turn those promises back to God and say, Okay, God, your word said this. I need to see you do it in my life right now for your glory. You delight in keeping your promises. Let's see it, God. Your next point on your outline says that we're to stand up to the threat. To stand up to the threat. That's in verses 13 through 17. To stand up to the threat. Notice what happens here. So all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. This is in prayer, right? They're around the temple in Jerusalem. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeliel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and an ascendant of Asaph, and he stood in their assembly. Verse 15. So Jehaziel is filled supernaturally with the Spirit of God, and though he is a Levite and a priest, he's going to lay down on these folks, folks. He's going to preach, he's going to prophesy, and he's going to speak the word of the Lord in a way that even Jehoshaphat the king is not filled with in this instance because God supernaturally is doing this for King uh, Jehoshaphat and the people. And so listen the words of Jehaziel as he's speaking straight from God, verse 15. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid. Everybody say that. Do not be afraid. Do you know that the Bible says, do not be afraid or fear not, 365 different times? How many days of the year are you? 365. You got to do not be afraid or fear not for every day of the year, friends. Okay, so right here, Jehaziel says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Battle's not yours. What are we worried about, friends? Why do we fret? Why do we get anxious? Why do we fight? Why do we try to do it on our own? If you belong to Jesus, Jesus has got your back and he's going to fight your battles. God says it here and Jehaziel reminds him of it then and he's reminding us today. Verse 16. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert, Jeruel. So you know this prophecy is true because he's telling them exactly what's happening. It's going to come true. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be uh, afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will with you. So Jehaziel says to them, God's going to fight for you in this very specific place. You're going to be on, in the can- on the canyons, but they're going to be in the valley. are going to have the high ground strategically. Hey, we could beat them then. 
But God's going to do it for you. You just have to march out and stand still and watch God do what only God can do. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to march out and do it my way, right? Anybody else? I want to march out and tell God what to do. I want to march out and give some plans or orders of my own. But the battle's not ours. Your subpoint there under stand up is that God promises to fight for his people. God promises to fight for his people. Now, I know, friends, this is a very specific instance. But God still loves you. And God is still God. And God desires your best. And a broad, specific promise I can make to you that is true is that God promises to fight for you, his people. The question is, where do you need him to fight? Have you asked him to fight for you? Have you allowed him to fight for you? Have you stopped trying and started trusting? Have you stopped prying and started praying? Have you stopped worrying and started relying? God will fight for us, his people. Let's go on in this passage of scripture. Your next point on your outline. Your next point on your outline is show up for the fight. Show up for the fight. They needed to stand up. He told them, you're going to have to go stand there and watch me do what only I can do. But you still got to go show up. You can't just stay at home and eat your bonbons and watch your stories. You've got to show up where God shows you to show up. You've got to demonstrate your obedience to do what God's told you to do. And God told them the next day, here's where you're going to go. Here's where you're going to stand. And when you do what I said, you will see me do what only I can do. Look what he does. Verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. When they prayed to God, they turned their minds attention and their hearts affection to God. And now they're demonstrating it that God's spoken to them in a very specific way. Verse 19. Then some of the Levites, the Kohathites and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel with a very loud voice. Do you see what happened here? This is like revival broke out, friends. They had a word from the Lord preached to them, and now they respond and worship. Now, another little aside for you. Do you know every Sunday at our church, we have this time at the end of a sermon that we call an invitation. You know why we do that? It's called an invitation because it's an invitation for you to respond to the message. You're not only invited to come to the altar and pray or to talk to me or pray with the deacon or anybody else you need to talk to out in the congregation, but you are invited in your mind and in your heart to say, okay, God, what do I need to do about the message I've just heard? And when we do the invitation, we do two separate songs most of the time. Why do we do two songs? We do two separate songs, and Myra picks them and uh, makes them complimentary with the sermon and with one another. But one of them mainly is to get you to think and respond, okay, what is God saying to me and how do I do this? And the other one so many times is like celebratory. If I've made this commitment to God, if I believe what His Word is saying, now I'm going to lift up my praise to Him. And it's a little bit more toe-tapping and the drums might be going a little bit. And we walk out the door with, "Woo! yeah, I'm glad I came to church this morning, right? Shouldn't that be the way it is? Yes! We're not just singing a happy song because we want you to feel happy going out the door. We're singing a happy song because the promises of God are true. And we have asked you to invite God to answer those promises in your life. And we want to celebrate that, friends. That's why we have an invitation every week. And that's why we sing two songs most every week to praise God like this. Now back to our scripture. Verse 20. 
Preacher got a little riled up there, sorry. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And they set out. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. Remember, they knew that they didn't have enough guys to beat this other army coming against them. That's why they called and got in prayer. But God tells them to go show up. So those without faith might be thinking, well, I might not come home and see my wife tonight. I'm showing up for a slaughter. But Jehoshaphat tells them, have faith. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. They are singing praises as they're marching to battle. These guys are either messed up or full of faith. One of the two. I believe it's the latter. Verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Seir to destroy and annihilate them, and they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, and they helped to destroy one another. Did you hear that? The 2.5 other nations that were coming against them fought against one another and destroyed one another. As they were going out singing, as they were going to stand up in the place that God told them to go, God fought the battle for them. Show up for the fight. Your next point there is that God conquers in the praise of his people. God conquers in the praise of his people. We don't think about praise being something for battle, right? But that's what this passage of Scripture teaches us. It's that when we say, okay, God, I trust your word is true, and we step out on faith, and we have praise in our heart and on our lips as we step out in faith, that that's when God's going to do his work. I think we worry too much. We fret too much. We try too much. And we pray and praise too little. Anybody else want to admit that's the problem in your life? It's the problem in mine. I have to ask, how cowardly is it of us to put our faith in our own ability, in our institutions, in our money, in our skill, our power, even in politics? Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep in perfect peace those, who minds, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah 28.16 says the one who relies on you will never be stricken with panic. God conquers in our praise. We've got to obey Him, but we praise Him on the way that He's going to do what only He can do because He's promised us in His Word. Let's look at your fifth and final point in your outline. The fifth 
point is lift up praise before God. Well, they've already been praising God, but uh, uh, we needed to tie up our sermon outline here. So we're going to finish it up right in verse 25 through 30. 30. Look what happens. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder and found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that they took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they uh, assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it's called the valley of Barakah to this day. God has provided. So I don't know why these other nations showed up for battle with like all their stuff, you know. Did they have a backpack on their back carrying their own Xbox and, you know, they had their skateboard with them and their scooter and, uh, you know, drove out there in their nice cars or took their nicest mules or whatever? I don't know. But for whatever reason, they took their stuff and God's people, who didn't even fight the battle but did obey, got to take all the stuff from these other bad guys, right? Look at what happens next, verse 27. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. I should say so. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The fear of the Lord came upon all the kingdoms of the countries, all their nations around them that might have thought, we can take these guys out. They aren't nothing like the 2.5 countries that already came against them. When they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for God had given him rest on every side. When we lift up praise to God, God does amazing things in answer. Your final point on your outline is that God ensures his glory by his sovereignty. Now think about that one. That seems a little bit redundant, right? God ensures his own glory by his sovereignty. Well, yes. God wants to use us to glorify himself through us. But not by our might, not by our power, not by our strength, not by our ability, and certainly not by our fretting or worrying or fighting but by our obedience. When we obey God and trust Him in His Word, then He gets the glory because He and His sovereignty has provided the answer. When people look at your life and go, man, I don't see how that just happened. God gets the glory. When God shows up and does what only He can do, He gets the glory. Prayer must be the hallmark of a Christ follower. When you think about your evidence of your commitment to Christ, I'd ask you to think about the type of things you ask God about in prayer. I'd ask you to think about the time you spend in prayer. I'd ask you to think about your persistence in those prayers. And then I ask you to ask, how am I doing? Am I relying on God through His Word and prayer Or am I trying to do it on my own? Am I trying to manipulate all the circumstances? Trying to fight for myself? Fretting over it? Worrying over it? Talking to everybody but God about it? 
When what I need to do is get into God's word and say, God, what does your word say that is a promise for me in this circumstance? And by your Holy Spirit, will you confirm it that I can lift it to you in Jesus' name by his authority and power that you might get the glory through your sovereignty in answering my need. When we are threatened, God gives us one answer. Not fight or fret, pray. And when we pray, God gets the glory. Amen. Let's pray right now. God, our Father, it is so amazing that because of your love for us, but in your sovereignty, that you give us the relationship with you through prayer. And that because you desire to get the glory, you will act in your sovereignty to get that glory for yourself through our lives. So, Father, we come before you now and we pray that we would recall today, this week, the rest of our lives, this message of Second Chronicles 20. And how we should respond to threats of our life. And coming to you in prayer. Father we pray by your spirit. In the name of Jesus. For your glory. We pray that. If there's any here that need to trust Christ as their savior today. They do that. If there's any here that need to unite with this church family. They do that. Any here that need to surrender. Something today. They do that that we would respond as you lead us for your glory. Amen.